0: Well, if you joined us for the first time at Desert Springs last week at Easter, Ryan told you that if you came back this week, it would be very similar. We would have singing of songs, praying together, hear preaching from God's word. What he didn't tell you is that if you came back today, you'd get the D-team preacher. Uh, Nearly everyone on staff is either gone in Orlando already or is on their way out of town today. Um, But we are also very thankful to have Brian and his guys uh, joining us and leading us from Redemption, our sister church in Rio Rancho. Well, we have been here, my family, the Shermans, uh, for about nine months now in Albuquerque. Many of you know we come from Texas. I went to the University of Texas. Uh, Ooh. (laughs) Some Aggies in the crowd. Um, Well, my junior year... uh, Texas played in the Rose Bowl against Michigan. Not the Rose Bowl that many of you might remember, which was the year later against those deplorable people from Southern Cal. Uh, But uh, my junior year, uh, we played Michigan. It came down to the last play of the game. 37 to 35, Texas is down, needing a field goal to win with two seconds left. 37-yard field goal. Bring out the kicker. And Michigan takes two timeouts. It takes about ten minutes. Everybody, a hundred thousand people in the Rose Bowl and millions uh, elsewhere watching on TV are waiting anxiously for what seemed like an eternity. Will Texas win or not? Finally, the ball is snapped. The hold is placed. The kick goes up. It's good. Texas wins. the The field is just stormed with uh, from the Texas sideline. I am high fiving friends. Uh, hugging like horizontally on the bleachers with a man that I've known for three hours as we sports cry together. Uh, and it was great. We spent, me and my buddies, a couple more days in LA and Huntington Beach and Hollywood and just had a great time because Texas made the kick. We won the game. What we didn't know is until we got back to Texas when we watched a replay of the game of the kick. And a Michigan defender had actually blocked the the kick with, like, the top third of his finger. You can see the ball change trajectories as he touches it, and it then flutters, like, horizontally, like a shot duck over the crossbar. They win. Had he, we always say that football and sports is a game of inches, right? Had he had one more inch in that vertical jump, gotten two-thirds of his finger, it's likely he would have blocked it. Texas would have lost and the rest of our week would have been shot, right? I mean, it would have been awful. Texas not only loses, but loses on a last second field goal. Well, it's true that sports are often games of inches, but I'm afraid it's also true that our lives are very lives of inches, determined on determined upon and contingent upon circumstances. Things going our way or not. Not only our joy and our overall state of being, but our very faith in God. When we get the job or the great job promotion, we say, oh, great God, how good you are to your people. We're healthy and making good money. Oh, what a wonderful and merciful God we have. Alternatively, though, we get laid off. God, how could you? or when we are chronically sick and or struggling to pay the bills. God, where are you? I don't know if you are a God worth trusting, or you might not even be there. Well, Paul will have none of this in the book of Philippians. In his farewell to his letter of the church of Philippi, Paul is going to tell his dear brothers and sisters to rejoice always regardless of circumstance for paul and as he's telling them and us for the christian your joy should not be contingent upon circumstance but rather your joy should be rooted in the nature of god and the promises that he has made so to flesh this out this morning we're going to look at three things from philippians chapter 4 verses 4 through 9 we're going to look at the timing of christian joy the source of Christian joy, and the fight for Christian joy. Before we do that, though, let's read our text together first. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So first, the timing of Christian joy. When should we rejoice? Always. Okay, next question. The source of Christian joy. No, we'll take a little bit more time to think through this, but seriously, he says always. What does this mean, that we're to be bubbly and happy at all times? No, he's Paul, the same guy who wrote this, says in Romans 9, he says, speaking about how he is wishing his Jewish brethren would would believe in the Lord Jesus, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. Jesus doesn't advocate a perpetual bubbliness either. He says, in fact, not only is it okay if you sometimes mourn, but blessed are those who mourn. We see this practically played out in his own life as he weeps and mourns the death of his friend Lazarus. He's weeping and mourning that creation is not the way it was when he created it. There is pain, death, and suffering, and he mourns that, even though in about ten seconds he's going to raise his boy Lazarus back from the grave. So if rejoicing and joy isn't bubbly happiness, what is it? John Piper has written extensively on Christian joy, or Christian hedonism, as he calls it. And he says that true and sustainable joy is this, being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Joy is being satisfied for all that God is for you in Jesus. And we'll talk more about this in answering the source of Christian joy, but if Paul's joy is rooted in satisfaction with all that God is for him in Jesus, then his circumstances should not affect this deep-rooted joy, right? So he describes himself in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. And then in Philippians 1, three chapters over from where we just are, he writes this letter from a Roman prison cell, And in verse 18 of chapter 1, from this prison cell, he says, says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, listen, whether by life or by death, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Regardless of his circumstances, and there aren't many circumstances that are a bigger deal than his life or his death, right? His execution or his exoneration. Paul is satisfied with all that God is for him in Jesus. Likewise, Jesus. We talked a lot about this in the last few weeks. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is in anguish as he is expecting the wrath of the Father on him for our sins on the cross. Yet despite anguishing of the coming crucifixion, he went willingly to the cross for the joy set before him, the satisfaction and obedience of the Father that he might redeem his bride and bring more glory to God. So rejoice always. This is the timing of Paul's joy, of Jesus' joy, and our joy. Paul then explains further in the next verse, in verse 5. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, some of your translations, I'm reading out of the ESV here, some of your translations may say something like gentleness, moderation, let your consideration be known to everyone. And the reason we have this wide range of meanings in our English translations is because we don't have a very good word, an English word for the Greek word that Paul uses. Some commentators I've read suggest that this should say, uh, let your forbearing spirit be known to everyone. That is, one that doesn't demand its rights, especially in the presence of persecution, like Paul is under right now from a Roman prison cell. Or how Jesus is described two chapters earlier in Philippians 2 as humbling himself to the point of death when he certainly could have demanded his rights, both as a Jewish man and certainly as the Son of God. Paul's joy, Jesus' joy, was not contingent upon how things are going, if they're going their way. Rather, their reasonableness, their forbearing spirit, their even-temperedness, in good times and in bad, were made known to all around them. Paul writes in chapter 1 that... There are many in the the Imperial Guard, Roman soldiers who are hearing the gospel and some are even coming to faith. So this even-temperedness should be evident in us as well. So we should preach to ourselves, as Tim Keller says, in the good times and the bad. So when we get the job promotion, we preach to ourselves, settle down, heart. This isn't my main thing. And likewise... When you get laid off, you preach to yourself the exact same thing. Settle down, heart. This isn't my main thing. When you're training for a marathon, you finish in a great time, and you're at the peak of your athletic and physical prowess, you can say, settle down, heart. This isn't my main thing. Or, when you're getting older, and your body begins to fail and hurt, you can say, settle down, heart. This isn't my main thing when you find the potential spouse of your dreams, when you finally get pregnant, when you are climbing the corporate ladder, settle down, settle down, settle down. When you're waiting in singleness, when you're struggling through infertility, when you're stuck in a dead-end job, settle down, settle down, settle down. This even-temperedness This reasonableness is evident. Your joy, as a Christian, should not be in circumstances, but in all that God is for you in Jesus. So we sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when times are really good, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when times are really bad, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Whereas John Newton, the other, or another great hymn writer, once wrote The grace of God makes the worst times bearable and the best times leaveable. My circumstances aren't my main thing, my source of identity, security, and comfort. The life of the Christian should not be a life of inches dictated by good or bad circumstances. So the timing of Christian joy, when are, to, when are we to rejoice? When are we to have deep satisfaction with all that God is for us in Jesus? Always. Regardless of circumstance. So, just rejoice, right? Stop feeling bad about your circumstances. Buck up. Just do it. Rejoice. Right? Well, the problem is, is that most of us can't just muster up some joy. We've got a, there must be a source out of which this joy must flow. So the source of Christian joy. Now Ryan, from this pulpit, often talks about indicatives and imperatives. That is, that in the Bible, an indicative, something that is indicatively or existentially true, must precede the imperative, that which we're told to do. So Israel, not of anything that they have done, is brought out in the exodus of Egypt, By grace alone. Only then are they given the law. Jesus in Matthew 4 is healing and saving many, uh, just having compassion everywhere. And then in chapter 5, he gives his Sermon on the Mount. Well, that is certainly true throughout the Bible, and it is certainly true here. In the second half of verse 5, Paul says, The Lord is at hand. This points us up to chapter 3. Verses 20 through 21, where Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says, Jesus is alive and is returning. Take it to the bank. And if that's not true, then we have plenty of reasons not to rejoice to be anxious. If Easter is not true, if Jesus' bones are still in the tomb, then we have all of the reason to be anxious. But, if Jesus is coming back to make all things new, to redeem his bride, and to remove the presence of sin... And not only in his future return, but I think Paul is also saying he's at hand now. Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. He says before he ascends to the heavens, he says, Lo, I will be with you now, in the present, even till the end of the age. So when Paul says the Lord is at hand, he's saying he's here now, and he is certainly returning again. It's when we operate under this reality that we have no need to be anxious in anything. In fact, Paul then says in verse 6, don't be anxious in anything. If we remove the indicative of the Lord Jesus being at hand, of our citizenship being in heaven, of dying being gained from Philippians 2, of the righteousness of God depending on faith from Philippians 3 and of his present nearness, if we remove all of these indicative truths, then we just have a new law to follow. We just have some new rules uh, to follow. Rejoice. Don't be anxious. And then we get anxious about not being anxious. We begin to worry about not worrying. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 6, don't be anxious, I think of the sketch comedy where Bob Newhart plays the mild-mannered psychologist. Have you seen this? He's in his office, and a lady comes to see him and she sits across from his desk and she tells him of her constant fear of being buried alive in a box. Consequently, she can't walk into an elevator, she can't go through a tunnel, she even can't go into houses or any other boxy type things, she says. So he very patiently says, so you're saying you're claustrophobic? Yes. Okay, I Two words for you, then. I want you to pay attention very carefully. Stop it! And she says, What? I I don't understand. What are you saying? He says, You know, I say two words to so many people, and you you would not imagine how many people don't understand what I'm saying. Stop it! Stop being claustrophobic! Of course, this is true, right? But this is not what she needed to hear. She did not need this new law to follow. But I fear in the imperatives that we read in the Bible and certainly here where Paul tells us to rejoice and not be anxious, we just hear, stop it or start it, right? He says, rejoice. And we say, Paul, I don't, what what are you saying? He says, you know, I say one word and you would not imagine the amount of people who don't understand what I'm saying. So again, I will say, rejoice. But this is not what Paul is saying. Because of all of these indicatives, you don't need to be anxious. So rejoice. Because of all that God is for you in Jesus, rejoice. Russell Moore, one of my seminary professors at Southern Seminary, tweeted this on Easter morning last Sunday. He said, The gates of hell are torn down. Death is ripped apart. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos. And you're worried about what again? We often sing, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? If we are trusting in ourselves to muster up some joy and stop being anxious, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. do ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Not, he might win the battle, or we hope he will win the battle, or he can or could win the battle, but he must win the battle. This is why we can rejoice, always being anxious about nothing. But then, Paul doesn't give us some advice, he doesn't just deny the existence of anxiety altogether, he very pastorally then tells us what to do with our anxiety. He says, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says the alternative of our worry and our anxiousness is prayer. In situations where you would naturally fret and worry, make your requests known to God. So why? Why is this? Why is prayer the alternative of anxiety? Is it because God now gives us the stuff that we were anxious about? After all, Paul does tell us to make our requests known to God, so maybe God is just unaware of the things that we're anxious about. So, God, I'm really anxious about my grades this semester. Oh, my goodness, I wasn't aware of that. A's. Or, God, I'm really anxious and worrying about finding a husband. My word, I wasn't aware of that. 6'5", sand volleyball player, moving to Albuquerque from San Diego, just for you. Or, God, I'm really struggling and anxious about finding a job to provide for my family. Well, we just look through my shepherd's guide and here to see what I can find for you. No! Paul is not at all assuming that God does not know our needs before we mention them but i think paul here is calling for humility on our part when we pray we are recognizing our position as fully dependent on and contingent upon god as the father the giver of all good things paul is likely here drawing on the on the jesus tradition teaching on anxiety from the sermon on the mount of matthew 6 and jesus pretty aggressively goes after anxiety he says that God loves his children infinitely more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, and yet God cares for and provides for those birds and flowers. So why would you not think that God will also provide for you? Our anxiety reveals this. It reveals us to think, God, I do not trust you. I think that I might be better able to provide for myself some level of security that you either would not, or could not provide. That you either would not provide because you aren't good or that you could not because you aren't able. This is pride and a lack of faith. This is exactly why Jesus, in the middle of his anxiety teaching in Matthew 6, says, Oh, you of little faith. You're trusting in yourselves. Now, I know that there are some deep, Rooted issues with anxiety, some long and deep emotional pain, some even in some situations, some biological and chemical things going on. And I do not want to minimize these. But what the scriptures are saying that, as at the deepest roots of our anxiety, is pride and a lack of faith. So, Paul says to pray. He says, humble yourself. Make your requests known to him in great faith. And then, in thanksgiving, trust him with the entire range of responses. Meaning, you realize that every prayer that you have ever prayed to God has been answered. We like to go back in a prayer journal and put a check next to the prayer that we have seen God answer affirmatively or like we wanted him to. But he has answered every prayer. More often than not, it's a no, or a not yet. So, we not only submit ourselves to the entire range of responses, but we are thankful for the entire range of responses. Without thanksgiving, prayer is just a spiritual way of complaining. God, you're not giving me what I want, my health, my kids' obedience, a good or a better job. Without thanksgiving, we're just like grumbling Israel, who certainly came to Moses and made the request known to him. Did they not? But these were more like demands. Without thanksgiving over the entire range of responses, then we won't be happy when God doesn't answer us like we want him to. We won't rejoice. But as I've heard, if you only worship God in good circumstances, then you aren't really worshiping God. You're worshiping good circumstances. If you only worship God when he answers like you want him to, then you aren't worshiping God. You're worshiping the stuff that you want him to give you. No. With thanksgiving, we understand that God is a good father who would not give us a stone when we ask for bread. But with thanksgiving, we also understand that he is a good father who cares more for our holiness than our happiness. And he will consequently often say no to things that would place our trust... In something other than him that would put our satisfaction and security in things other than him. So when we rejoice always, casting our anxiety onto him in all humility and thanksgiving, what happens? Verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace of God will guard language likely carried a Roman military connotation to its hearers. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome guarded its people in its day. The Philippians enjoyed the benefits of being guarded by the peace of Rome protection from outsiders, accessibility to goods through trade, accessibility to daily necessities like food and water, law and order. But the peace of Rome could certainly not guard. The Philippians' hearts and minds alleviating their anxiety. And whatever benefits Pax Romana brought to its people, the benefits of Pax Americana, the peace of America, are certainly greater. Last month, Marcy and I watched a documentary about a man and a wife in Orlando who began building a 90,000 square foot mansion modeled after Versailles. Throughout the documentary, you saw this timeshare tycoon struggling through discontentment discontentment with his family with his company with his reputation even the dumpy old mansion that they were currently living in he when asked why he wanted to build versailles he said because i can it was easy for me to make fun of this extreme opulence and thank god that i wasn't like those sinners Until about halfway through when I realized, although I don't have the means to live as opulently, my longings, desires, and discontentments were pretty much the same as this guy. All of the wealth in the world could do nothing to satisfy and secure and guard this man's heart and mind. And again, while I don't have the means to live as opulently, I do have a relatively nice house, Two cars, a TV that streams Netflix, and yet these can't satisfy me. They can't guard my heart and mind. The week after we watched this, a few of us from our youth ministry took four days, and we went out onto the Navajo Reservation, uh, serving and loving and uh, just getting to know some churches out there, beginning to build partnerships with them. And one of the more common takeaways is we were coming home from the trip from both our parents and kids, was the amazing contentment and joy of some of these Navajo people that we were coming into contact with, even though very few of them had running water in their homes. Some didn't have electricity, most didn't have air conditioning or heating, the things that we take for granted. So we talked about how is it that we who have much can often be discontent, and they who have little can be content. I think often, this is what, the way that we answer this is what Paul describes later in chapter 4, in 11 through 13. Paul says, "'Not that I'm speaking of being in need, "'for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. "'I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound.'" In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice this verse isn't talking about athletic achievement anywhere. Paul didn't write this with eye black with Phil 4.13, right? He's saying, in all things and in all circumstances, I can be content contentment in in all things, not achievement in all things, because his contentment does not depend upon his circumstance. My contentment and my joy should not depend upon if Texas makes the field goal or not. And look, it's a supernatural contentment that comes. How can Paul do all things with contentment? Through Christ who strengthens him. Contentment is not natural. Discontentment is natural. The natural version of this verse, meaning the man-centered version of this verse, is I can be discontent in all things through myself who strengthens me. Right? If your contentment, your joy, your peace, your rejoicing are all contingent upon yourself and your circumstances, then whether you are rich or poor, you can be discontent. Likewise, if your contentment... Joy, peace, rejoicing are all contingent upon who God is for you in Jesus, then whether you are rich or poor, you can be content. And then look, back to our original text, verse 7. A very peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that marches out like a Roman cohort, surrounding you and defending you, protecting you, In situations where we would naturally fret and worry, we make our requests known to God in all humility and thanksgiving and the supernatural peace of God, which we cannot understand, goes out around you, protecting you, protecting your hearts and minds against anxiety and becoming as a source of Christian joy. Here's the problem, though. The problem is, is we forget this. We are forgetful people. The problem is is we forget to rejoice. The problem is we forget all of these indicative truths that are true. We get anxious about these things. We need to be reminded both from others and to remind ourselves, which is why now we move into our last section here, the fight for Christian joy. Paul concludes his exhortation to the Philippians here with a final charge to their thought life. Let's read 8 and 9 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Often, these verses are used by Christians to say, all right, listen up, kids. Don't listen to any secular music. Not pure. Certainly don't watch any rated R movies. Not lovely. Only wear t shirts such as a breadcrumb and fish. And only sweeten your breath with testaments. Excellent. (laughs) Right? But Paul here is not saying to only think about Christian things as if that were at all possible. What is Christian? What is a Christian thing? Most of the Christian movies being put out today are essentially teaching us to be good moralists, completely devoid of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't this what VeggieTales teaches us? As I duck behind the lectern as you throw your rotten bob the tomatoes. (laughs) But this is why our youth group, we have our Film and Theology Nights. And I think we can learn more about the gospel through films such as Groundhog Day an elf, and Thor. You laugh, but in Thor we see the Son of God sent to earth, where he dies for his woman, he's resurrected to new life, and before ascending into the heavens, he promises that he will return to make her his bride. Next Saturday, 6 o'clock in the youth room, if you'd like to join us, we'll watch a movie about the inability to change our own nature, the longing for approval, the transformative power of love, and the renewal of all things because of the work of a sacrificing hero. The deeply theological and animated treatise, Wreck-It Ralph. (laughs) This is true and honorable and praiseworthy. And it's interesting here that Paul's list that he gives here in 8 and 9, are mostly, commonly, well-known Greek virtues. The adjectives here that he gives, he very rarely, if ever, uses in his other epistles. He's saying, you Philippians, look around you, and the things that these, the, these non-Christian Greeks are doing, that are God-acknowledging and God-honoring, rejoice in these things. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that you should go read or watch or listen to any and everything. We should be discerning as Christians. But what I'm saying is that Paul isn't telling the Philippians only to think about Christian things. He's telling them to think about all things like a Christian. Think about the world as fallen and in need of redemption. But then also affirming those common grace attributes and image of God qualities that even non-believers portray. So, When you are watching a football game, or Wreck-It Ralph, or reading a book, whatever you do, do it to the worship of God, and then also allow those things to point you to the gospel, whether they're doing it perfectly or imperfectly, most likely imperfectly. But rejoice in these, think about these, dwell on these, and then allow them to spur you into even more thanksgiving that God has not only revealed himself to you generally like the rest of the culture, but he has revealed himself to you specifically through his word and through his son Jesus. But this, again, is not natural. We don't naturally think about what is true and excellent. We don't naturally rejoice. This is why Paul has to urge us to reform the way we think. Norman Vincent Peale says, You are not what you think you are, But what you think you are. I think what he's saying is that what you find yourself thinking about most is probably indicative of what you find security in, comfort in, identity in. So, what do you find yourself thinking about the most? And this is why I've titled this section The Fight for Christian Joy. Naturally, we rely on ourselves. Naturally, we think about anything but God in his gospel of grace." This is why Martin Luther says, "Every week I preach justification by faith to my people, because every week they forget it. And this is true. I guess is an hour from now when you're in lunch, having lunch, you are nat- naturally, we, we, you will just forget everything that we've talked about, what we've thought about, what we've rejoiced in we tend to naturally think about anything but the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and all that God is for us in Jesus. Supernaturally, though, through Christ who strengthens us, we can remember the gospel and think about and dwell upon its promises. The gospel of grace, the forgiveness and justification of sinners, reconciling them to God so that he might adopt them as sons and daughters, is the most true, Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy thing that you can think about. And when we fight to remember and preach the gospel to ourselves, we fight for more joy. Last Thursday night, we've had a long week of disobedient sons. Uh, our two oldest are nearly three and four and a half, and it's been a long week of once they're in their beds and closing the door of every three minutes them getting out and coming into the living room with every excuse imaginable of why they should be out of their beds. And Thursday night was like the low point. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, I needed to fight to remember the gospel with Owen and Caleb that night. I needed to fight to remember what Paul Tripp told us at the Claris Conference, that every occasion of disobedience with my sons is an occasion for me to be an agent of grace, of patience, and of transformation of the gospel. Uh, And it was a fight that I don't think I won very well that evening, in all transparency. It was a fight that quickly culminated in anger and frustration. I needed to fight to remember the promises of the gospel. That is, if you have faith in Christ, that he lived the life for you, and then died the death for you, so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God, rejoice! If you have been, recon- that you have been reconciled to a living and holy God, if you have faith in Jesus, Rejoice! If you have faith in Christ, He has adopted you out of your state of of being an orphan and into the family of God. Rejoice. The kingdom of God is being known on earth and in your life. Rejoice. It is certain that Jesus will return and that we will spend an eternity with Him in all joy, removed from the presence of sin. Rejoice. Think on these truths. Dwell on these truths. Rejoice on these truths. What you think you are. Fight to remember. Fight to remember that the gates of hell are torn down. Death is ripped apart. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos. And then, Paul gives himself as as an example in verse 9. He urges the Philippians to do what they have learned, received, heard, and seen in him. Paul uses the word for joy or rejoice in these short short four chapters more than a dozen times. More than a dozen times from a Roman prison cell as he's awaiting for his head to be cut off. So he's saying, if you, Philippians, will fight for joy in the same way that I have, that is, if your joy is not contingent upon your circumstances, and if your thoughts are reformed to think on and remember the gospel of grace always, then what will happen? What does he say will happen? The last half of verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. And here is just a deliciously exquisite turn of words from Paul that I hadn't noticed until I started preparing this. Maybe you have or haven't. In verse 7, Paul says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. But now in verse 9, he says the God of peace will be with you. And I think that what Paul might be getting getting at here is he's saying this, that you should seek after the peace of God, yes? But you won't get it unless you are first seeking the God of peace. That is, do you want peace? Do you want freedom from anxiety and worry? Do you want salvation, deliverance from hell? Good circumstances. Or do you want the God, the giver of all of those things? Again, hearkening back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things, in his context, food, drink, and clothes, will be added unto you. Paul, I think, is saying something very similar. Seek first the God of peace, and then his benefits... Joy, freedom from anxiety, a vibrant prayer life, thanksgiving, peace, will be added unto you. If we only seek the peace of God apart from the God of peace, we'll get neither. Do you want God, or do you want his benefits? Are you satisfied with Christ alone and his righteousness given to you, or do you want him to improve your circumstances like a genie? But when we first seek God, His kingdom, and His righteousness, then the peace of God, His benefits, will go marching out around you, protecting you, surrounding you, and guarding your hearts and minds. Here is reason to rejoice. The God of peace is the source of the peace of God. The God of peace is the source of our joy, of our rejoicing always, regardless of circumstance, of our lack of anxiety. Regardless of circumstance. So, rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in your circumstance, but rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice.